Welcome to the PA Books Podcast. PA Books is a production of PCN, the Pennsylvania Cable Network. This program features interviews with authors of books on Pennsylvania people, history, sports, business, nature, and politics. We hope you enjoy this podcast. Welcome to a special podcast-only edition of PA Books. I'm Phil Beckman. PA Books is a weekly program featuring interviews with authors of books on Pennsylvania history, sports, politics, culture, and more. To learn more, visit PCNTV.com. In this episode, I'm joined by Robert Swift. He is the author of the book, By Great Rivers, Lives on the Appalachian Frontier. Thank you for being with me. Thanks, Phil. Uh, now, you write in the book that you wrote a paper as a high school junior on Fort Little Niagara. Uh, yes. What was Fort Little Niagara? What was it that drew you to that topic? Um, the thing that drew me was that there was a, a remnant of that fort, you know, what they call the old stone chimney, which um, was the chimney of what was a fort. And then when the fort was burned down, it survived as a uh, in, in houses that that lasted, it was part of a trading post and then a house. So, so it survived the ravages of time. And when I was, uh, you're talking here in junior high school, you you can to this day you, it's been moved around several times, but you can still go visit the chimney. And that that intrigued me. Um, I think the it was considered to be outside of Fort Niagara itself, the, the oldest structure on the Niagara frontier, Western New York, where I grew up. And so I, that's a paper that I remember going down to the Erie County uh, Historical Society and doing research in these musty old books on that. So, so that intrigued me. And um, so I made sure that I, I've included, always included that when I write about this period. It's like going back to the roots, so to speak, for me. Now, the book covers uh, uh, biographies, uh, profiles of a lot of individuals who were on the Pennsylvania frontier. Uh, how did you decide who to include? I, I was looking for, um, first of all, I wanted people who I was interested in. And some of the people, like the uh, John Kerr brothers who built Fort Little Niagara, uh, Mary Jameson, a, a white woman who was taken captive by Seneca, had, had a long life. Uh, living in the Genesee country. She actually was captured on the Pennsylvania frontier. So I included people I, I was long interested in that I felt was interesting. Plus, I wanted to show that the frontier was um, what I looked at as a multicultural place. Uh, it was not just the English on the frontier. You had the French had, you know, were, were striving for control of much of this area. You had the Native American tribes, um, multi, you know, multi-ethnic tribes, really, Delaware, Seneca, Shawnee. You had uh, one third of Pennsylvania spoke German at the time, at this time. And you had uh, Moravian missionaries speaking German. Uh, you had uh, French Protestants who had fled France. They were, because of the Catholic Wars, they were some of the key fur traders. So you had this sort of... Um, dynamic to me dynamic society changing as the frontier moved westward uh and the two wars of the 18th century what they called the french and indian war and the revolution sort of um broke up that multicultural society and if i had often wondered if the wars hadn't taken place would pennsylvania look much different demographically well where we might still have a large native american 
population here. Now, your book does include uh, profiles of a variety of Native American figures, uh, but you also say that we only hear their voices as recorded through white interpreters. Uh, why? Why was that, that the limitation? They um, basically, in this period, had not, didn't have a written language, the, the Native American tribes. They um, would had an oral tradition where, um, or if they did, they would, pre, like one tribe, the Conestoga, had you know preserved treaties uh, handed them by William Penn when he visited them in 1701, and they would always bring out the treaties. But they it was there was an oral tradition. So when you're trying to go back in into the uh, archives, you whether it's the Pennsylvania provincial uh, minutes of the minutes recorded of meetings, or um, many of the people who wrote about this period, the literate people were missionaries. So you're relying on them a lot with or interpreters at press conference or at the conference, dip, diplomatic conferences, you're relying on uh, their interpretations, what they wrote down. And so I, I want to be, I always want to be careful that when I'm describing that, and I want the Native Americans in the book, but I want to be careful that we're looking at someone's perception. And it's really just really hard. Their, their biographies are fragmentary of their lives. We often don't know when they were born or when they died. Uh, so it's, it's, Difficult. I just want to always make that point that we're, we're looking at another culture's perspective on them. Now, you mentioned uh, Conestoga, and it's a reference to a people, but it's also yes. it was also a town. Yes, and there's still, a, you can go, um, it's quite the place to visit today. It's, it's in Lancaster County. It's about a mile or two east of the Susquehanna River on a hillside. And there's, there's a, a state historical marker there were actually were two towns there. There was a 1701 village where, where William and people. I think people aren't aware that William Penn actually got out that far to the Susquehanna River and met with them. He was only in Pennsylvania for about four years, two separate periods, about 20 years apart. But he did get that far, and I and at that time, for 20 years after, kind of the Conestoga village, which by this point was a collect a multi-ethnic place where different tribes were living was the major diplomatic place where, where, where the Pennsylvania provincial leaders of the time, William Penn and his successors, Governor Keith and James Logan, they would go out there to, uh, to, to hammer out the many of the diplomatic treaties that were needed. Now, one of the key figures in Conestoga was civility. Who was he? Yes. And he was, once again, he's something we, 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 he shows up in the, uh, what they call the colonial records of Pennsylvania. And so he, over a period of 20 years, you see his name and civility was an English name. He also had a several, uh, he also had a native American name with various spellings of this. This is a time when people spelled phonetically. And so you can find several versions of his name spelled in the uh, minutes. So he was someone who was trying to, uh, every, all, all these native American figures they're fighting a rear guard action they're basically being pushed further and further west their their idea of land conflicted with the Indian settlers land when they sold land they didn't think of it as oh we're going to fence it off and uh you can't go past through here to hunt that you know to them it was uh, a different idea of land ownership than what the english settlers had so invariably, when the settlers started moving near Conestoga, you would have problems with 
oh, if, you know, runaway pigs were in the frontier and they were killed by one of the Indians, there'd be disputes. Or whose, whose justice should be used to resolve disputes? Is, was it the English court system or um, the native tradition where maybe uh, the two families in the heart of a dispute sort of reconciled with each other? And civility was caught up in that sort of negotiation with the England, the prevent, provincial Pennsylvania governors coming out to Conestoga. Now, you mentioned uh, Conestoga as a center of frontier diplomacy, and that's certainly between uh, the English in the east and the Native Americans in the western part, but it was also north and south. You had Iroquois in the north and uh, uh, other groups in, in Virginia, and, mm -hmm. uh, and there was something called the Warrior's Path. What was that? Right. The Warrior's Path, and there were a couple of different this was basically a couple of different, you know, versions of it. It was a north-south path, one, one, you know, basically going through central Pennsylvania. And at this point, um, the Iroquois Confederacy and based in western New York was the stronger, strongest of the uh, Native American tribes. And they were, you know, hostile with the uh, Catawba and uh, Cherokee tribes down basically in South Carolina, that area. And so that warrior's path got its name because they would travel up and down the paths engaging in warfare. And the, the concern was always that this could very easily, you know, draw in Pennsylvania into the conflict, Virginia, Maryland. And that's why there was all this diplomacy to try to um, resolve, you know, who was going to use what sections of the path. Um, that's and this this kind of threat of warfare would um was really lasted for about 20 years on the um between these north south tribes and what, another thing that pennsylvania had done in the 1730s pennsylvania basically struck an alliance with the iroquois and people um the iroquois capital was at onondaga which is modern syracuse new york and so one of the most important paths between the two was called the Tupelhocken Path. And basically that was coming down from Williamsport to Sunbury, then veering um, eastward, basically through riding down to Philadelphia. And the idea today that there'd be some connection between Philadelphia and Syracuse, New York, people would never be shaking their heads like what? But that was one of the more important um, routes for people because of that alliance that Pennsylvania had built with the Iroquois. Uh, how did that alliance affect the peoples living in Conestoga? They were um, basically that superseded their their influence was waning in Conestoga because at the start they had been closer. Um, we had you know we did have some Swedish and Dutch colonies or Swedish colonies in Pennsylvania, and they had gone fur trading and struck. There were paths that went out to Conestoga. You're even talking the late 17th century. But the fur trade was moving west. And as that did, and that was the, a lot of the economic interest of the uh, Pennsylvania officials was getting control of the fur trade and, and same with the French. As that moved west to the Allegheny region, Ohio, Conestoga became marginalized. And then once um, Pennsylvania had struck the alliance with the Iroquois, the Conestoga was, they weren't necessary anymore. And also the other thing was that Pennsylvania had also struck the alliance with the Iroquois because that kept some of the other 
tribes, the Delaware, who were in the Lehigh Valley, Wyoming Valley area, that they were somewhat, I'm not, subservience, a weird word, word to use, but the Iroquois had a lot of influence over what they did because they were the stronger power. And Pennsylvania, when they formed that alliance with the Iroquois, it was to help keep those tribes, the Delaware, in check. And, and of course, the Delaware were a tribe that these tribes are all being, in this period, displaced. White settlement was, Penn, Penn was buying land from them, William Penn, and they was pushing them all to the west. So by the mid, by the maybe the 1740s, the Indian villages that were cropping up to the west, we talked about Shimokan, even some of the ones in the Allegheny area, were multi-collections of different tribes living there. You know, they were no longer just one tribe. These villages were polyglot places. So as Conestoga was superseded, what happened to the people there? This is a tragic tale. One of the tragic tales, basically, the there were always Indian tr- living, even, you know, we Penn would buy land on paper and he you know, found Lancaster as a city, but didn't mean that Native Americans went away. In fact, they never went away. So they were, so there was still a remnant uh, group living at Conestoga and they had, they earned their living sometimes selling brooms and stuff to the white settlers. It wasn't a prosperous life, but they held by until Pontiac's war in 1763. And that was a war where tribes you know, from the Great Lakes were coming into Pennsylvania and the colonial settlers, the Pennsylvanians on the frontier, by this point had about, they had seen many of their families, you know, killed in these raids and they were no longer tolerant of any Indian groups living with them. So a group called the Paxton Boys, which are really a bunch of border ruffians from this area here, Paxton, Harrisburg, went and massacred them. And uh, they, in the, or they, they massacred them. A few of the survivors were taken to lodge in Lancaster County Jail, and they got broken there and killed them. And when they went to the ruins of the site of the Conestoga town, one of the things they found was the 1701 Treaty with William Penn, the parchment. You know, it's, it's, sort of a, it's one of the tragic uh, episodes of, of Pennsylvania history. Now, you mentioned that uh, this frontier area was a, a multicultural society. And uh, one of the figures that you write about is Anne Latorte, and she was a French person. She was from France. Yeah. How did she end up living in an English colony? The, the French, um, basically, in her case, her and her hu- husband, Jacques, had you know, come over from France and uh, to England, and then they basically were settling here and get involved in the fur trade. Her son, James, went on to become a fur trader. Some of the other, um, there were in, in time, they there was a group of these fur traders, French, uh, Pierre, Martin Chirte and his son, Peter, um, uh, Bazillion, I can't remember his first name now. Um, P- oh, Peter Bazillion, another French fur trader. In the case of Chirte and Bazillion, they had actually been, um, they'd come down from Canada. They, they'd been on expeditions with La Salle down in the Mississippi. And then they, and, they, and with the, um, they worked their way east and then got involved in the fur trade here. And Latour was more coming from France to London and then over to Pennsylvania. And they were, she was based 
uh, in the Schuylkill River area. And then they had a trading post not too far from Conestoga. And her son, James Latorte, is gave the namesake for Latorte Run in Carlisle because he actually went to Carlisle. And he's another one. He kept on moving west. You know, he was one of those ones who, and who, who moved into the, into the Ohio country as the fur trade went there. Now, one of the figures you write about uh, is a Native American named Moses Tunda Tatami. Yeah. And uh, you say that he was one of the few Native Americans to own land privately within the colony. Why, yes. why was that unusual? Basically, it was just, it was not, there were not many, um, one with the different concepts of land. Also, he was in a, one of the few in a special position. He was an interpreter, a negotiator, and so he was able to get some title to some land in what's now called Forks Township, Pennsylvania. And he also had enough skill to um, go down when the um, Penn sons were making land purchases in that area. He had been able to negotiate to continue to live in that area, saying that he had converted to Christianity. And uh, he had actually become a convert of a noted missionary called David Brainerd. So he had some, he possessed skill how, of being able to deal with the uh, Pennsylvania officials. And that's how he was able to, to get the land. Now, in addition to Conestoga, one of the other main Native American towns on the frontier was Shimokin. Uh, what, what was significant about that town? Once again, one, one of the things I, when I started looking at this period, I realized that a lot of the, that the, the, the state boundaries we were, were familiar with weren't there. And what they, this region was governed by waterways. And so when you had the forks of a river, that was a strategic spot. So Shimokin was at the forks of the Susquehanna River, modern day Sunbury, um, Easton, forks of the Delaware. Pittsburgh Forks of the Ohio, and the other great fork river was the Muskegon River in Ohio, which is Coshocton in Ohio today. So that was that's where the, the um, Native American trails all, all you know, Shimokin was the juncture of about five major east-west-north-south Indian paths. Uh, Shimokin was also a town of displaced people. It, it, it grew up in the 1730s as um, different tribes were being pushed out of Eastern Pennsylvania. Also, that's where the Iroquois sent their sort of, um, I've heard some people call him Shikalami, a viceroy. That's a little bit, I think that's off. It wasn't the Roman Empire here. But he was sort of sent down to keep an eye on the different tribes that were in the Wyoming Valley and sort of being displaced in the upper Susquehanna. He was like the Iroquois agent there. So that was where he was located. And the Pennsylvania um, negotiator, Comrade Weiser, that's what would off. That's where the Tupelhocken Path would go to. And towards the end of its, um, there are many accounts. The Moravian Church sent missionaries, and they had actually had a blacksmith shop there. But there were accounts near the end in the 1750s of um, oh riotous times at Shemokin, You know, too much drinking, that sort of thing. <laughs> you know, so it also had a bad reputation too. Uh, you mentioned the Moravians. Uh, who were they? They were um, a German sect basically based in uh, Bohemia. And they obviously came up out of the Thirty Years' War, the Protestant Reformation. They um, basically are called Pietist sect. But they um, they had a mission here in um, 
they founded the city of Bethlehem, which was basically a church commune until the 19th century. But they had a mission to uh, Christianize uh, Native Americans in their, in their region. And you can argue whether this was a good or bad thing. They, the missionaries would go and they were creating these actual European style villages with houses and and um, they featured a lot of uh, worship. They um, had what they call love fest with chocolate, milk, and butter, and I always wonder about that. And uh, they they were um, off, but they also would try to preserve the, the language of the, of the, the Mohican language, the Delaware. They would write glossaries of that language, so they weren't all. It was you know they weren't trying to stamp out the whole identity of Delaware, but they were trying to sort of. Put them in this European style town now, and you can argue today whether that was good or bad. Um, and they had a, a number of, of these towns, um, throughout especially throughout eastern Pennsylvania. Then later, they were these they were moving west too with the uh converts. But Shimokin was a place where they had uh, uh had a lot of hopes of getting making inroads with the um Native Americans, and th this experiment with the Moravians also was sort of like took a heavy hit with the both the French and any war in the revolution. Now, another major figure uh, during this time was James Logan. And uh, you're right that uh, William Penn brought him uh, to North America yeah. as his secretary and that on the voyage, they encountered a French privateer. Yeah. What happened? Well, basically the, um, the, f f the Quakers, which William Penn and um, James Logan were, were, supposed to be nonviolent pacifists and that was their policy even when they were in power in Pennsylvania for until up really for the first half century of the 18th century so when this um this was not uncommon on the void England and France were often at war in this period when they were crossing over this is the, at this point you're talking here you know the late 17th century to have uh pirate ships privateers bearing the seal of the of the king and you know attack these other ships and Logan, the Quakers, William Penn and the other Quakers went below, and he went up to man the guns. And so uh, the person who writes about this is William Franklin in his autobiography, because uh, Franklin was someone who knew, who knew Logan. And uh, he said that William Penn expressed some disapproval. But then I found, I also write about, when I write about the frontier, James Logan never lived on the frontier, but he influenced it greatly because he 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 was the one uh especially in lancaster county he was steering the scotch irish to build fortified enclaves almost in a dunico area of lancaster county he was in, he was uh trying to keep the, the william penn had had a policy of religious freedom inviting immigration from europe so he had a lot of germans coming over the mennonites the uh, palatinates from a war-torn region James Logan, he was, he was, you know, William Penn, he was trying to keep control of the situation. And um, he was also a very learned man. You know, he had one of the biggest libraries in colonial America. But he was also, like, getting his hands in the fur trade empire. And he was employing people like Anne Latorte to work for him, you know, and getting Conestoga wagons to haul the goods to warehouses he owned. But he was he's quite an operator, in my view. And sometimes he looked; he could be underhanded too. 
Now, you can't talk about the Pennsylvania frontier without talking about someone like uh, George Krogan. Who was he? Yes. He was, um, he was um, in many ways, he was um, a rascal in a rogue. He's, um, he, he had a, a, one of these up and down eventful lives. He came um, here poor from Ireland, and, but he basically was able to uh, get involved in the fur trade. He, he had a real uh, knack for dealing with the Native Americans. They called him Buck because uh, he would set the prices on one deer buckskin. So one buckskin will be worth so many maybe rifles or blankets, that sort of thing. And he um, was able to basically create a, a fur trading empire that went out way into Ohio, and he was heavily traveled. He became um, an important negotiator for Pennsylvania, especially in the Ohio country, which is where the great rivalry with France was developing. But he was also someone who was, you know, getting into debt a lot. And he was actually at one point, you know, had to flee the settled part of the province to go out. He had a post in Algwick, which is the Shirley, Shirleysburg in the Juniata County area. But as much he he may go, he would go out of disfavor. What they needed him when war would break out. So he, when the French and New War started, he was building uh, forts for, for Pennsylvania. He later ended up working for the um, the British had a, um, a series of uh, commissioners for Indian tribes. And when their top person was a guy named Sir William Johnson in New York, and Krogan worked for him. Um, he owned vast tracts of land, but he ended up dying in Philadelphia in 1782, rather broke. Now, another key figure, somewhat similar to George Krogan, was Conrad Weiser. Yes, he's, he's in many ways, I, I find him um, very um, admirable guy. I, I sort of think highly of him. He, he's, he was he was a group. He came, um, I mentioned before, the German, and I hope I'm pronouncing this, Palatinates. They came from a, a region in um, Germany that was war-torn during the Thirty Years' War, and they initially settled in New York State. And um, the governor in that state gave them some land in the Mohawk region. But um, in the 1720s, uh, Pennsylvania Governor Keith enticed a number of them to migrate down to the Reading area. And Weiser was of that group, but he came a few years later. But he um, had a large family, but he became um, the central figure for Pennsylvania in their dealings with the uh, Iroquois because him and the um, guy I mentioned before, Shikalami, were the duel that would go up and down, be traveling on these paths, the Tupahawken Pass, sometimes in the winter, if there was a war brewing between on the warrior's path between the Iroquois and the Catawba, they, they were the ones who would set out to go up to Onondaga to try to forge a solution. And they had many um, perilous accounts of these, you know, near starvation sometimes trying to go up through these areas in the winter. Weiser also briefly further with the effort of Cloister, which was a, you know, a celibate communal society. So he's sort of a interesting guy in his own right um you know it's just not your had his own you know inner uh, spiritual longings outside the practical business of being a diplomat now you mentioned the effort of cloister and you say in the book that the backcountry of pennsylvania and virginia attracted a good number of religious seekers and mystics in the 18th century that is one of the things when i first started looking at the frontier 
here especially was the heavily how the influence of religion which i and we, we talked about the moravians uh we talk about the scotch irish presbyterians who virtually every place that there was a spring they built a church and you think of silver spring outside of carlisle and uh you go to one of these churches today and you look and there's a spring still um so the um The mystics were were people. Some of them were um, wanted to live out uh, as hermits almost, so they would go to the far reaches away from set of life. Others were coming to the new world. The effort of cloister, comrade Beisel, the founder. Uh, they, these these were people who, um, you know, men and women lived separately, but they they wanted to form a communal society, a new way of living, and they thought they could do it in the new world. And of course, Penn, in a way, had encouraged this for Pennsylvania because of religious toleration and because inviting people, the Mennonites, the Amish to, to come here. And so that's that's what drew him, him here. Um, I write about these brothers called the Eckerlins who uh, they were pre, they were uh, living in Ufford a cloister, uh, but they didn't, they, they had a falling out with Comrade Beisel. And um, one of the things was that they wanted to do more, they had a, the one that had rockery in the mill, they were somewhat more, they didn't have the same thing about lack, you know, lack of owning things that Beisel did. They were more practical minded in that regard. And so they were sort of had to fall out. They migrated down to Virginia. They were known as the Sabbatarians because they, they celebrated the Sabbath on Saturdays and they, they dressed weirdly in monks robes. Uh, the problem for these guys was that when the, uh, French and the war broke out, they weren't trusted. The uh, British thought they were potential French agents. The Native Americans didn't know what to make of them. And the French uh, didn't know what to make of them either. They were taking them, two, two of the brothers up, they, were, they took them up to, uh, into Canada as prisoners and eventually put them on a ship to France where two of them died. So they, they these kind of communal um, societies, they, they flourish in peacetime. And or, or even the Moravians, the Christianized villages did well in peacetime, but in wartime, um, they were they were suspect. And so they were raided by, first of all, the, um, when the French war broke out, the, the Delaware who cast their lot with the French, they distressed the distrusted the Indians who had joined them, become converts and lived in these villages. So they didn't like him. And then the English, you know, living in um, Allentown and nearby Easton, near, not too far from uh, some of these missions, they thought they were pro-French. And so they, they were getting, they were getting wiped out. Now you mentioned the Eckerlin brothers, uh, Israel and Samuel, they, they did eventually go down to Virginia at some point. Yeah. And then moved out into the western, I guess would would wouldn't have been Pennsylvania yeah. at that time, but areas along the Sheet River. Uh, they they did seem to maybe wear out their welcome a little too much. At one point, George Washington was sent up to arrest them. Yeah, what was going that, on there? This is the problem. They were they were it didn't fit. You get war, get polarized. I mean, down there, um, even their settlement, there's a chimney standing there too of their settlement. It's there in Massanutten Mountain near Strasburg, Virginia. I've seen it. What's left of their settlement is this massive stone chimney. 
but they were they constantly were um, having to go. They were being harassed by Virginia authorities, so they were moving out to the Cheat River. This is West Virginia now. This is really on the fringe of of any kind of white settlement at this period. So when the war broke out, you had a pro-French force attack them and um, killed some of them. And then the two, two of the brothers were taken, well, let's say were taken prisoner by the French up through Canada. And, um, they were um, not able to, once again, they were, they, were, they were odd ducks in a world where each side was really worried about fifth agents. There was a lot of distress when these wars broke out. Now, another uh, person that you write about is Susanna Wright. Yes. And uh, you mentioned that she held government posts. Uh, she looked after Native Americans who were displaced and even counseled Benjamin Franklin and James yes. Logan and others. And that's, that's interesting because um, her um, the Wright family home is beautifully preserved in Columbia, uh, Pennsylvania. Uh, and when you read about her, you you read about that she had, you know, was raising silkworms and she had orchards and it went down to the river. We look down today and there's a railroad track going through there. But the home itself is, is beautifully preserved. I was intrigued by her because, you know, here she um, was very literate and, you know, she's carrying on correspondence with Franklin and his wife. And she's also, but she's also had um, a friend named, you know, and I'm not sure, named Samuel Blunston, who was a, one of the chief people who first surveyed the West Shore, what we know as the West Shore now, of, um, you know, Camp Hill, Lemoyne, Hampton Township, and uh, giving lots to settlers. So she was, um, he willed his home to her after he died. So he had a close relationship, but it's hard to know if there was something more than that. But I was intrigued by her as also a forceful woman who, uh, especially when in the aftermath of the uh, Conestoga massacre, she was one of the people, you know, really concerned about that, upset by that. Uh, and so here, and so she's someone I wanted her in there because I wanted to broaden horizons of who we may, who we may think is on this frontier or, or involved with it, you know, shaping it. And she, that, that's why when she's in that book. Now you mentioned uh, that in 1748 that there was a treaty conference in Lancaster with representatives of the Miami uh, peoples from uh, Pickawillany yeah. in what is now Ohio. Uh, how did they end up coming all the way into Pennsylvania? By around the 1740s, the British and French were starting to look at the what they call the Ohio country, which really started, you know, if you think Pittsburgh's the forks of the Ohio, they were looking at that as the, the that was their bone, that's the, that was the ground where they were competing on. The French were coming down from the... Uh, the Niagara River, uh, going down French Creek, you know, to Pittsburgh, then into the Ohio River. George Krogan was taking, was going on um, with tra trading expeditions to the Miami seat of Piccolone. And the Miami had actually moved out of the Indiana, the state of Indiana, to get away from the French influence because they liked the... Um, they thought the English had better trade goods, a better quality and better price. And so they wanted, the chief Memesca had wanted to uh, 
tap some of that market. So at that point, you know, Conestoga is faded. Lancaster is the biggest, really biggest inland town in the 1740s. Carolina had not even been founded yet. There was no Harrisburg. And so that was becoming the place for the treaties. And so um, in the terms of like that world, that wasn't that long of a, I mean, people traveled, these Indian delegations would travel and every maybe two or 300 of them. And they expect to be fed and, and housed when they got to the conference. First, it could be several weeks. So that was, James Stenton dealt with that at his house, or I'm sorry, James Logan at his house. Stenton had to entertain these delegations. So that was not unusual. Now, the problem was, so the English, you know, has struck up this a good ties with the Twitewe or the Miami, but the French struck a counter blow in 1752. They, they attacked Piccolini and Memesca. They basically uh, killed and boiled him and ate him. <laughs> so, so that's what, that was his fate. And um, English, um, influence in the Ohio country collapsed with, with, with the French and Indian War because Pennsylvania really wasn't ready yet. It's a Quaker-led um, government and they really weren't ready to be sending armies out to fight with the French in the, in the Ohio region. Now, the, the French continued to maintain presence, especially after, after the attack of Piccolini in the area along the Allegheny River and the forks of the Ohio. And there was a a family of the Jean Cares who uh, who were influential out in that area. What what role did they play? They were the the Jean Care family was the key French father and two sons who were the agents dealing with the first it was the Seneca and then what he also had was a lot of um, Seneca and Iroquois migrating into the Ohio region and they became known as Mingos. So they were the key agents dealing with the Indian tribes. You had a couple um, French-led expeditions, uh, military expeditions into the region to claim land, but it was really the John Cares who were the ones who would be at the, you know, councils in the villages. And there was a, you know, these people would run into each other. The one uh, Thomas John Cares, one of the sons, actually there were encounters with him and George Krogan at a town called Logestown, which is now near Ambridge, Pennsylvania. And then later on, a young George Washington was sent by the Virginia governor, because Virginia had claims in this area too, to go on a scouting mission to tell the French to get out of Western Pennsylvania. And he encountered uh, John Kerr, uh, this is 1753 at what was known as Fort LaBeouf, modern day Waterford, PA where they had a parley and they had some toast to granny, you know, and then sent them back on your merry way. Well, you can't come here. So these people, the John Cares, they, they're running into uh, the English representatives on these trails in these tribal areas too. So they're, you know, they're both out there trying to sway the tribes in each side's favor. Now, one of the sons, uh, Philippe Thomas, participated in Sailoron's expedition uh, to basically, I, I guess, uh, have the French lay claim to possession. But one of the things that they did was they buried lead plates. Yeah. And I've always wondered why, I mean, if you want people, basically, if you're saying this is ours, you know, yeah. or stay out, why would you bury it? Why not just That's have- a good question. And they, <laughs> they've actually found a few of them, but 
yeah, it doesn't make a lot of sense, but that's what that's what they were doing. Doing um, this, that was a Celeron expedition. I think it was 1749. And um, once again, like uh, we are in a situation here when the English um, kings would grant a, like a when William Penn would get a charter for Pennsylvania. No one really, you know, knew what the western boundaries of Pennsylvania was. And uh, they had a very um, sketchy idea. You look at some of the maps of the period of the Ohio country, even at that point, and it's really just a few of the major rivers or the forks and the rest of it's all blank. Um, even one of the, um, this would be 17, maps coming out in the 1750s, English maps of the interior of Pennsylvania, New York State and Ohio, very, very sketchy of what was actually out there. So they lacked a good sense of geography. Now, I suppose if you're cellaring, once again, if you're going to bury your plate at the forks of the river, that that's still the key spot. But what these people didn't rely, I mean, they had no, obviously the rivers, courses that we look at today weren't the same as back 250 years ago because of erosion and shifting river currents. So they had no conception of that. And um, it is a good question. Why, why they think burying something was going to help at all? Yeah, I don't know. Now, some of the other figures out along the frontier were uh, naturalists, people coming in, yes. particularly from Europe, you know, encountering North American plants and animals for the first time. Uh, one of them that you write about is uh, from Sweden, is Peter Kalm. Yes. And you, you, you talk about how he went to Niagara Falls. What, what did he see there? He, he was um, one of the, the Niagara Falls um, for, for hundreds of years from his first, the first French were, were seeing that 1660. And it was, it was a spectacular, one of the wonders of nature, wonders of the world. And so anybody who, um, Peter Kalm, anybody who got near it was, um, was drawn and he writes about almost a hypnotic spell of the water and he describes it. And he, but he also writes too, of watching the, um, the French at that time were employing the Seneca sort of porters for hauling trade goods around the falls. Cause you know, he had to go on land portages and he describes that very well, that system they had of, um, the trade goods are the furs are coming from the all the deer that's that deer skin, beaver skin, and all many types of mammal skins are coming out of the Ohio country by this point because the eastern part of the state had been over hunted, and they were taking the Fort Niagara, which is a French fort where um, Lake Ontario meets the Niagara River. That's why it was a choke point. It connected uh, French Canada with the vast interior of Louisiana the vast Illinois country, Ohio country for the French, because they really were an inland, uh, inland colonial empire. <clears throat> so Calm was one of the first, you know, many travelers in this period were, were going to Niagara Falls because <clears throat> it was a strategic spot because the French, by this point, the time he was there had been, you know, Fort Niagara was built in the 1720s. They, they had 20 years of um, a French, you know, activity in that area and um he uh, i i use it because if i'm going to write about the river regions the niagara frontier you can't ignore it in relation to every everything else um 
for even for Pennsylvania's frontier, because that is where um, warrior parties were coming to attack the Pennsylvania uh, settlements. They were coming out of the Niagara frontier, especially during the revolution. So it's, it's still, it's, people don't think of it as Niagara as being connected, but it is very much so. Now, another figure up by the Niagara area was John Stedman, and you describe him as the master of the Niagara Portage. What, yes. what, what was his job there? Well, he basically was um, the British sort of, in a way, privatized or semi-half privatized the transportation system up there, especially after they took control of it from the um, French, because uh, they had won the French Indian War. They had laid siege to Fort Niagara, Bert Fort Little Niagara. And uh, they took it upon themselves to um, modernize this transportation system. And a John Stedman was from England, and then he was uh, put in charge of it. Um, and to it was quite the commercial enterprise. They um, had been able to uh, the Seneca. They had been able to have win some land sessions from the Seneca right around the river on both sides of the river there. And uh, Stedman was um, someone who had, um, they had a, during one of the wars, Pontiac's war, when there was a, what I call a pan-Indian uprising against the British, about five years after the end of the French and Indian War, they attacked uh, one of these convoys taking furs uh, up in the uh, Niagara River and uh, wiped them out, a place called Devil's Hole. They threw them into this, Devil's Hole was the name of a huge whirlpool in the Niagara Gorge, still there today. They threw the Teamsters and the soldiers into the gorge. Stedman was able to, you know, get out of it on his horseback and flee it, only by the grace of God for him. And he had another, you know, 20 years of activity, um, basically on that, on that river system, making sure that the portages were um, available to take goods back and forth. Now, there were many figures from the Seneca uh, nation that uh, played a role in Pennsylvania. One of them was Corn Planter. Yes, Corn Planter was, um, he was the son of a white trader, and um, he was born in central New York State, and he was, um, he had a Seneca mother. And during the revolution, Corn Planters is on many of the raids, the British I should say back up that during the American Revolution, the uh, Iroquois and the Seneca had allied with the British against the, Amer- the Americans, the revolution revolutionaries, and um, the British had by this point uh, had really cultivated that relationship quite a bit. Uh, by this time, the revolution, you know, up in uh, what they call the Genesee Valley, some of the Indian towns. They were living in log cabins with window panes and their orchards were and their um, produce, their cornfields were the envy of anybody who saw them. So as a young man, corn planter is um, influenced by that. And he's when the revolution breaks out, he's leading or involved in many of the raids into northern Pennsylvania. 1778, they had something called the Great Runaway when uh, settlers on the West Branch, the Susquehanna were fleeing, were being attacked. They had the Wyoming massacre in modern day Wilkes-Barre. After the revolution, um, 
corn planter was a you know he had a Seneca tribe on the Allegheny region and he was the leader and the Americans started to cultivate him because they were at this point concerned that the Iroquois could ally with some of the tribes in the Ohio region and and we were that, at that point that's where the American wars against the Indians had shifted to the Ohio region so they were cultivating him and uh, also corn planter was being visited by a lot of Quaker missionaries and he came around to sort of agreeing to try to adapt white European agriculture methods, sawmill. And eventually he um, was granted control of three land tracts by the Pennsylvania General Assembly. One was the site of, you know, two of these sold, one's the site now of Oil City, but corn planters tract up along the border was, his descendants lived there into the 1960s and um corn so in and then one what i consider one of the tragedies for the native americans because they had a treaty right that was their land it was the kinzo area seneca area uh cited some of their ancestral creation myths and uh when the federal government built the kinzo power dam in the 60s as a basically flood control for Pittsburgh and recreational, they eventually took that land by eminent domain and they had to re relocate corn planter's grave, which is now in a little cemetery overlooking the reservoir. But the state of Pennsylvania paid for a monument to him to be put up there like in 1866 at the site of this grave site for him now. So Pennsylvania never had any Indian reservations. The Indians were pushed out except for the corn planter tract, which was not really a reservation as such, but then eventually they lost that too. Now, uh, corn planter's half brother was a man named Handsome Lake. Yes, and you write that he was a founder of the Longhouse religion. What what was that? This was um one of the th one of the problems of um, Native American society. Uh, as they were losing land, losing traditional ways, losing you know access to hunting. They were there was great social dislocation in these tribes, especially when, you know, even Shimokin, we're talking about this polyglot town of displaced people. And so some of the traditional uh, Native American ways of life were breaking down and alcohol was a major problem. Uh, there was laws passed in Pennsylvania early 18th century to not to sell liquor to um, Indians, but they weren't obviously they were ignored. So by the time we're here in the you know late 18th century, there was a movement in many tribes to go back to the traditional religions, to not to you know give up alcohol, to not um, you know get to try to not not embrace Christianity, and Hanson Lake was one of the more prominent. Um, advocates of that and um so uh, half brother of corn planter so that but there's also tension you know because corn planter between the two it wasn't like as he was trying to navigate this new world you know he had uh, handsome lake also advocating a different course and even in um there were similar 
on the Ohio frontier at this time, there was a guy named the Prophet emerging among the Shawnee, advocating the return of traditional religious values. So it was not just um, the Seneca, it was, it was, this was happening in other tribes too. Now, an, another Seneca man who had a great influence was Red Jacket. And uh, you say that he, he eventually became a celebrity as a result yeah. of some paintings by people like George Catlin. How, how did yeah, that happen? He, um, he, he was, um, has his name Red Jacket. He was once again born in New York State. He has his name Red Jacket because a British officer gave him a red jacket to wear in the Revolution. He, he was in some battles, but he was more of a uh, he was more of an orator. And uh, so he he was widely um, some of his speeches have been reprinted once again by white men, but they're quite they're classic speeches. He was considered a powerful orator, orator. and um, he he basically his lot in life was by the early 19th century the seneca were like they were trying to avoid being sent to kansas basically which is where a lot of you know the delaware of pennsylvania ended up in oklahoma by around eight, the early 19th mid 19th century and corn planter or red jacket was trying to stop that so he was fighting what i call a rear guard action uh he what they managed to do they lost a lot of the, the land west of the Genesee River that they had, but they saved. They say what were, were reservations. They lost a key one at which became the city of Buffalo, but they, there's about five or six reservations to this day: Tandawanda, Cattaraugus, where um, the Seneca still still live in. You know, and so Red Jackets is someone, and he was controversial with the Seneca. But they sort of have to, I think he has a big role in um, achieving that. They were able, the Seneca were able to negotiate a treaty with the United States government in 1794, which, which sort of recognized them as a nation. And once again, they, they're, um, they, had to, they had a disastrous, one disastrous treaty that you know, would have forced them up. But that got, with the help of um, Red Jacket and some others and some white people, they got that renegotiated. Uh, so Red Jacket, another thing that he's known for, he actually met George Washington. Washington gave him this big silver medal, which I've seen this on display. And so he would wear that. And he lived long enough that uh, I, I include um, Miller Fillmore, who was president of the United States from Buffalo, actually met him when he was a young man and wrote a, wrote a description of him. I thought that was fascinating. So, Fillmore is not someone you always think of beating Red Jacket. So I included his description in my uh, story. This is late at life. Red Jacket now has a nice um, Buffalo's major cemeteries forest lawn. And you go in there and there's a great monument to Red Jacket with some other Seneca chiefs buried around him. Well, that'll have to be the last word. We're out of time. Uh, we have been speaking with Robert Swift. He is the author of the book, By Great Rivers lives on the Appalachian frontier. Thank you for speaking with me. Thanks, Phil. Thanks for the opportunity. To find more PA Books episodes and other programs produced by the Pennsylvania Cable Network, visit PCNTV.com or download the PCN app. I'm Phil Beckman. Thank you for listening. You've been listening to a podcast of PA Books, a production of PCN, the Pennsylvania Cable Network. 
Full episodes of PA Books, as well as other PCN programs, are available to stream with the PCN app. Visit PCNTV.com or the App Store for details.